Thank you for joining us for this discussion hosted by the Barentesen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes, Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies here at The Open University, and I'm joined today by my OU colleagues, Dr Janet Huskinson and Dr David Noy, and we're delighted to welcome Dr Sean Leatherbury, who's visiting us from the University of Oxford to discuss ancient mosaics. Now, Sean, your current book project is about the mosaics of Roman and late antique Syria. Perhaps you could start by giving us a very general picture of the kind of evidence that you're working with. So my book project on the mosaics of Roman and late antique Syria is focused primarily on the floors of Roman houses, family tombs, as well as churches and synagogues in the region of greater Syria. For the earlier period, for the Roman period, most of the evidence is concentrated, the excavated evidence anyway, is concentrated around uh, the city of Antioch, uh, modern Antakya in southern Turkey, where excavations in the 1930s, led by Princeton, uncovered massive numbers of uh, house pavements. Most of the Antioch house pavements are drawn from the realm of Greco-Roman mythology. For the later period, the late antique pavements from churches and, and synagogues, these tend to be decorated primarily with geometric patterns, which were in vogue especially in the 4th century and early 5th century CE, and a bit later, a trend towards depictions of the animal, so animals running rampant on the floors of, of the Syrian churches. Also some biblical scenes, typically drawn from the Old Testament. So a, really a range of material, um, and of course shaped heavily by what's been excavated, sort of by chance, what survived, as well as where the efforts have been focused. So a lot of these pavements from cities, some from smaller villages and towns, uh, and more being uncovered really every year. What do we know about the artists of these mosaics? Our evidence for the artists of these mosaics comes from a few different sources. The mosaics themselves, of course, people have been concerned with their style, the types of motifs that they depict, but also from texts, uh, especially uh, one of my interests, which is epigraphy, inscriptions that are present in these mosaics that often act as types of signatures. So we'll give the name of the artist, perhaps their profession. Uh, and for the later mosaics, the, the church mosaics especially, will feature the artist within a larger sort of constellation of personalities involved with the construction of a building. So the donors, the patrons who are paying for the building, the, the clerics of the church who are involved perhaps with supervising the project, and the mosaicists who are usually listed last in these inscriptions. Because they're listed last, it might be easy for us to think about the uh, sort of low social status uh, or cultural capital of these particular individuals, of these mosaicists. But actually, because they're present in these grouped inscriptions in a lot of cases, I think that they actually were integrated into the faith communities of these particular um, villages and, and cities in the region of Syria. So there's a lot more integration uh, with wider populations um, than has been thought previously. And what can we learn from the mosaicist names about the local culture? What's really interesting is that a lot of these mosaicists, when they're named, have names that sound Greek to us, that come from the cultural world of, of the Greek East, let's say. Uh, so a name like Procopius or Cosmos. A number of them, however, 
have names that appear to come from an even more local uh, orbit, and that would be the, the Semitic or Syriac-speaking uh, region of Syria. And these names sound different. Uh, they also often are present in Greek, uh, so the name is given in, in Greek, in a Greek inscription, but we can tell that it comes uh, from more local, more local realm, if, if you will. Also, sometimes these inscriptions are written not in Greek, but actually in the local languages uh, of Syria. So languages that are all dialects of Aramaic, uh, Syriac uh, a little bit later in the church inscriptions, and earlier in languages like Palmyrene, which was the dialect of Aramaic spoken in the city of spoken and written in the city of Palmyra. So in that case, we really get a deeper sense of perhaps the cultural affiliations of these individuals, of these mosaicists. David, you've worked on synagogues and Jewish inscriptions in Syria, including mosaics in synagogues. Can you tell us about the mosaics in the synagogue at Apamea, but perhaps start by giving us some background to the Jewish communities of Rome and Syria? There was a substantial Jewish population in Rome and Syria, Every city would have contained a Jewish community. They probably lived in rural areas too. There were three Jewish revolts against Rome in the first and early second centuries. Syria was on the fringes of all of them. And after the revolts, Jews everywhere in the Roman Empire paid a special tax to Rome, but otherwise had freedom to practice their religion. So for, t- uh, for two centuries, Jews in Rome and Syria were practicing religion, their religion freely. Under Christian emperors in the fourth century, they started to suffer legal restrictions. There was a prohibition on building new synagogues. They were prohibited from embellishing old ones. The trouble is it would be very difficult to write a history of the Jews of Rome and Syria because the evidence we've got is so patchy. In literature, we usually hear about them only when things went wrong. So most of the information we've got comes from physical remains which can be identified as Jewish, and that in itself can be problematic. How do you know when something is Jewish? The seven-branched candelabrum, the menorah, is the most obvious physical symbol, and that could work as a Jewish answer to the Christian cross or fish. Every city in Roman Syria must have had at least one synagogue, but very few have been discovered or at least identified. Uh, We've got one from the far east of the province, Dura Europos, where a full set of wall paintings has survived. And then at the other end of the province in the the west, uh, we've got a complete mosaic floor from the synagogue at Apamea. So tell us about that mosaic. What does it look like? Whereabouts in the building is it? Uh, There was evidently a project to lay a new floor in the synagogue, and one part has got an exact date, which corresponds to the 7th of January, 392. Uh, Of course, we don't know how long it actually took to complete the whole mosaic. Um, To put it in context, in 388, at the town of Kalinicum on the Euphrates, which is less than 200 kilometres away from Apamea, the synagogue was burned down at the instigation of the local bishop. So it wasn't necessarily a time when you would expect Jewish communities to be uh, building mosaic floors for, for their synagogue. 
And the reason the, the mosaics have survived in good condition at Apamea is because within three decades, the site was converted into a Christian church and the floor was covered over rather than being destroyed. So almost the whole of the floor was preserved. And it consists entirely of geometric, multicoloured, actually very beautiful designs uh, interspersed with Greek texts recording the names of the donors. And the only obvious Jewish symbol is one tiny seven-branched candlestick. Everything else is text or geometric patterns, but there's no doubt about the Jewishness uh, because some of the donors whose names are recorded had names like Nehemiah and Saul, and some of them had distinctive Jewish titles like Archisynagogos. Altogether, there are 19 mosaic panels recording information which in other synagogues was put on a piece of marble on the wall. The names of the donors and their families what they donated, like the mosaic of the entrance or a hundred feet of mosaic, uh, and often an expression meaning having made a vow or having solemnly promised. So it looks like uh, what Roman historians call euergotism in action. The project was initiated by some prominent men in the community and everyone with money contributed as much as they could, and their reward was to have their names recorded permanently and publicly. And one striking thing about the names is that women paid for 50% of the mosaic and amount for slightly over 50% of the contributors. And they made their donations for the welfare of themselves and their families. Do we know anything about the artists of these mosaics? Unfortunately, we don't. Very broadly speaking, the geometric rainbow style of the mosaics looks to an untutored eye quite similar to other mosaics that we find in Apamea but there's no actual information about who did it how they were commissioned how long it took none of the practicalities Janet you've worked on late antique mosaics from various parts of the Roman world would you like to add something about mosaics in some early churches in the city of Rome, a city which had a special place in the early church? Rome's certainly a very significant place in the development of church mosaics, particularly in the history of the Western Empire. And that's not really surprising because Rome's long history as an imperial capital meant that it was rich in material culture. Um, there were influential and well-educated patrons experienced craftsmen and a population used to being presented with meaningful visual imagery it had to learn to decode. So it was well prepared for Christian patrons. Um, and during the fourth century the standing of Christianity had radically changed from being persecuted to becoming the official religion of the empire in 380. And this, of course, led to a huge growth in art and building as Christian patrons were now free to use their wealth in, in the course of their religion. So in Rome, we find many large churches built near the tombs of earlier martyrs or on the sites of earlier um, small house churches. And while the Roman catacombs had largely been decorated in fresco, these high-profile church buildings were decorated in the far more expensive medium of mosaic. So what time period are we talking about here? 
Uh, well, for these um, historical reasons, um, these developments, particularly in the fourth century, church mosaics in Rome really begin to appear around that time. That's from the mid-fourth century on. But they become much more frequent from the early fifth century with the program of building new churches. And then, of course, um, church mosaics continue right across the centuries in Rome. You can certainly see many medieval, Renaissance, and up to the modern day. And so I think this long tradition is another good reason for looking back at some of the earliest examples in Rome, because they were so influential in what came afterwards. I'll just mention three of these early churches, that of Santa Prudenziana, then Santa Sabina, and Santa Maria Maggiore. They all essentially date from the early 5th century. They're like all ancient churches in Rome. They and their mosaics have undergone many restorations and alterations since, so we may not be looking at what there was originally. And where do they tend to be placed within the buildings? Well, first a bit about the the architecture of these um, churches. Like most churches built in Rome at this time, these are basilicas. That's to say they have a central nave separated from side aisles by um, columns. And then, most important, they have an apse at the east end. So the nave is leading up to terminate in the apse. So we find mosaics on the interior walls of the nave, in particular, and the curved vault of the apse. And I think the whole effect of um, their richness and glimmer must have added to the general sense of sort of that this was a sacred and unworldly space. I think we don't have any surviving floor mosaics from this period in these churches. I mean, if you think about it, over the centuries, the floors have been replaced and grander sort of medieval or Renaissance floors um, have replaced what would have been there um, in the early Christian period. So both of the positions where we have surviving uh, mosaics, walls and apse, were highly visible to the congregations, and especially they were liturgically important. And this is particularly so in the apse, where the mosaic images lay directly above the altar and the rituals that were being performed there during church services. So the example at Santa Prudenziana shows how this was also an ideal place for large compositions. The best examples of wall mosaics, which had to be smaller, really, to to fit into the space in the colonnade, are in Santa Maria Maggiore, where there's a series of panels along the nave, and then vertical rows of figured scenes on the east wall that face down the church, back down the church, and is called a triumphal arch, a sort of technical name that's given to that wall. Santa Sabina's got a, um, a mosaic inscription on the wall, which records the church's foundation. And it's flanked by images of two women who uh, we can identify by their inscriptions as representing the Church of the Jews and the Church of the Gentiles. That's to say the two strands of Christian heritage. So we've already mentioned the theme of community. How might these Roman mosaics relate to that theme? Although they don't have the same level of documentation as the Syrian mosaics have that we've heard about, they do in fact say quite a bit about this community in Rome. It's essentially a religious community that uh, is shown in the mosaics to exist on different levels. There's the eternal spiritual community with Christ at its centre. 
and with its own biblical traditions and experiences of salvation through Jewish and Gentile traditions. And then there's the historic earthly church made up of the 5th century Romans who had built, decorated and worshipped in these buildings. Unfortunately, there's no evidence about the individual craftsmen who worked on the mosaics, but two of the churches have mosaics recording who founded or dedicated them. In comparison with the Syrian examples, these are quite brief, I should say. Santa Sabina has the longer of the inscriptions and recounts how it was established by an Illyrian priest called Peter. While at Santa Maria Maggiore, there's a simple mosaic panel which inscribes how the church was dedicated by Bishop Sixtus, that's to say Pope Sixtus III, to the people of God. And at the third church, Santa Pudenziana, Christ is depicting holding a book inscribed with the words, the Lord, keeper of the house, or congregation of Pudenciana. So they're quite short inscriptions, but they do emphasise how the congregations are very much linked into the hierarchy of the Roman church and to God. The mosaics also include a lot of reminders that these communities are part of the church in Rome. These reminders come from references to local saints and martyrs like Peter and Paul, to details of Roman social iconography, like Christ's imperial clothing. And these visual details help to bind the everyday community with the eternal. Let me remind you that you're listening to an audio from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion, and we're talking today about mosaics in sacred spaces. Aidan Hart is an artist working in the Greek Orthodox tradition. He makes painted and sculpted icons, as well as mosaics, and his work appears in churches and other buildings all over the world. He's also the author of a book on techniques of icon and wall painting. I spoke to Aidan about his artistic background and about the theology that underpins his mosaic art. I was born in England but raised in New Zealand, and um, I did a degree in English literature and mathematics. I've always loved the arts and the sciences and trained as a secondary school teacher, but I really knew I wanted to be involved in art. So after a year teaching, I left and started life as a sculptor. Um, so I was a professional sculptor for about four years, um, a Christian, but most of my work was really for exhibition. I got a few church commissions, but but nonetheless informed my worldview. And I was looking very much for influences that would help me to express something of the spiritual nature of the human person. And this, to cut a long story short, led me to the Orthodox Church and to the icon. So really from 1983, um, when I came to England, I've been a professional icon carver first, having been a sculptor, I started carving relief icons, and very quickly got into painting. And my I've always enjoyed a variety of media, and I've been studying mosaic for a long time and just waiting for an opportunity to start mosaic. And I think when it was, probably about, I don't know, seven years ago, I was approached by a church in Cardiff, an Anglican church, uh, actually to do a fresco for outside. And I said, in fact, I think a mosaic would be better than a fresco, more durable, more impact. So that was my first mosaic. That was around all about two metres across, a metre, a metre and a half across. And I put that up on my website, a photograph on my website, and within three months I got a very large commission from Houston, Texas, for two mosaics, I think five by four metres. So, um, and then things just developed from there. 
So I always found with Icon Commissions there are three elements. They actually always work within the Icon tradition. So, and the aim of the Icon tradition is really to show the world aflame with God's presence. So you're not just depicting what's visible with the physical eye, but also what's visible with the spiritual eye. So if a commissioner asked something that I felt was sort of outside that worldview, I, I would suggest another way of doing it. So that's the first input. I'm, I'm working within the parameters, the theological parameters of that tradition. But within those parameters, uh, different commissioners want different emphases. So Father James and Houston um, wanted the coloration and various elements of the mosaics to relate to an existing wall painting you already had in the narthex. So he put a fair bit of input in. Um, so I came up with um, a drawing based on that. And the third input is my own experience, um, looking at a particular space, what country it's in. I don't believe in just plonking Greek stuff in America or England. I, I like to draw on the local tradition. So I'm, I'm integrating all sorts of things, the architecture, the light, um, the culture I'm working within. So it's many, many different factors. Um, and, uh, and in Houston, I suppose the input from the priest was quite a lot, but sometimes I have to say, look, this is a mosaic, it's not a painting. A mosaic has its own strengths and weaknesses. What works in painting won't always work in mosaic and so on. So you, there's quite a bit of guiding as, as well. You can't just sort of become a complete servant to the ideas of the commissioner because they don't necessarily know the um, particular nuances of one's medium. I consider myself a door maker. The important thing with an icon, and the word icon is a Greek word meaning image, is that it, it brings people um, through a door to meet the person depicted. So in that sense, I'm a door maker. So once I've made the work, I've done my work and I withdraw. So it's not a, a monument to me at all. It's just a means of people communicating with Christ, the angels, the saints depicted. So I, I, but on the other hand, people see my work and they can tell it's an Aiden heart. So inevitably, you leave something of your own mark on it. Um, so it's not to say I'm a photocopying machine. <laughs> on, on the other hand, one is, the aim isn't to impress your ego on things. In the Orthodox Church, we, we, give up, we very much believe in um, the goodness of the material world and that we can communicate with God in our spirit using words, but also using the material world. So. I think when I'm painting an icon, making a mosaic, carving something in stone, that I'm, I'm praying with matter, not just with words. Um, and, and the other element I love, and this is like a form of spiritual ecology, if you like, that I'm taking raw materials, God-given raw materials, um, in the case of mosaic, glass and stone. And these are like, I treat them like words in a dictionary. God gives me this dictionary with words in it, which is a lovely thing, but then I've got to then select words and combine them into a poem. So I think these are sort of certain almost priestly aspect to it as well. You're sort of taking raw material, like wheat if you like, making it into bread, grapes making them into wine and then offering them to God, then God in his turn descends on the artwork and makes it something even more than just a human object. So this is wonderful sort of symbiosis, a sort of sacred dance, as it were. We offer, we step toward God, God steps towards us, and it's all through the medium of, of matter. And I find that really, really exciting. After listening to Aidan speak, I'm wondering what connections you'd all draw with your own ancient material. David? 
thinking specifically about the synagogue mosaic at Apamea, there were two things which what Aidan said made me look at it rather differently. One was how did you find a mosaic, a mosaicist before the days of websites? If you're a Jewish mosaicist in Roman Syria, it would be quite hard to make a living. You might go to somewhere like Apamea and there would be a big project which would keep you going for a year or two. But what happened then? Possibly there were Jewish mosaicists who travelled round the province from one place to another. I think more likely people might have used local mosaicists who had no specific Jewish connections. And then the other thing Aidan talked about was the relationship between the mosaicist and the commissioner. For ancient mosaics, we, we only know about the finished product. We don't know what negotiations went on to produce it. If synagogue leaders decided they were going to have a new mosaic floor, then basically they had three choices. One was to have geometric patterns and texts with no specific Jewish content, and that's what they ended up with at Adapamea. Two alternative would be specifically Jewish scenes and symbols with biblical figures, the Jerusalem temple and so on, which is what you find in some synagogue mosaics from Palestine and on the walls of the synagogue at Dura Europos in Syria. And the third possibility would be generic pieces of mosaic art, such as a zodiac, which you also find in some synagogues in Palestine. And everyone who's written about the synagogue mosaic at Apamea has assumed that the finished design represents the beliefs and wishes of the Jewish community which commissioned it. But after listening to what Aidan said, I think that's a good reminder that the views of the mosaicist might also have played an important part. Janet, how about you? Well, I, it made me think particularly of the apse mosaic um, at Santa Pudenciana and others like that, in which you find what was a new composition which highlighted very much the image of Christ as uh, a ruler figure, either over a sort of top topography of heaven and earth or giving the law. We can see that some of this came from imperial iconography from the Roman Empire, but what we don't really know is, as David has described at Apamea, how much input there was from church figures or from church teachers or from the particular clerics in charge of the church that actually helped evolve these very striking and very detailed new commissions. So again, it was very interesting to hear um, Aidan, who came over as a very thoughtful and committed Christian artist, to hear the part that he played while still working within the tradition of an icon, which in many ways in the Western Empire starts with the apse mosaics at Santa Budenziana. So big questions, but I don't know the answers for my bit. And Sean, how about you? Several things that Aidan said really resonated with me in thinking about the ancient material that I work on. The first is this emphasis on anonymity uh, as a kind of way to humble oneself in in the eyes of the divine. So the idea that Aidan doesn't sign his work, that people might know it by, by style and perhaps by iconography, but not by text, not by a signature. This really was a present concern for 
patrons as well as mosaicists, artists in Roman and late antique Syria. And we have a number of examples of individuals who might mention their contributions, either artists or patrons, but not name themselves. Um, so they're staying anonymous, getting some amount of credit within the community, but at the same time preserving that uh, very strong relationship, uh, private relationship between dedicant and, and deity. The second thing that really struck me about Aidan's comments was his emphasis on his own faith, of course, uh, which does not preclude a commerciality, if you want, a, an ability to work for Christian patrons, Christian clients, uh, of different dispensations. Uh, so his work for the Anglican Church, for example, that really has a lot of parallels in the ancient world. We know of mosaic workshops that created floors for buildings of different faith communities. Uh, so, for example, a, a group could create a floor for a church as well as for a synagogue. And really um, reminds me also of a, a trip I took recently to visit a mosque, a contemporary mosque in Toledo, Ohio, where I brought some of my students to, to visit um, and and see their fantastic stained glass windows that they had just had repaired. Uh, we were talking to one of the leaders of that community about the, the process of repairing the stained glass, and they said that they had actually brought in a, um, a specialist, a Christian specialist in, um, in church windows uh, to come repair the, the mosque windows, which look nothing like those of a church. They have fantastic Arabic calligraphy and so on. So really this idea of artists being able to adapt and work for, for different communities is very alive and well uh, today. At this point in our audio discussions, I normally ask speakers to pick out one particular object to talk about in some more detail. I'm going to ask you each to pick out one mosaic that you've worked on which you think is particularly resonant to the study of ancient material religion. Okay, no contest. I think my choice is a floor mosaic that was found by chance in 1963 in Hinton St Mary in Dorset. It probably dates to the early to mid-4th century and it covered a large room which had two distinct sections joined by a narrow threshold. I've chosen it because I think it's probably more typical of material evidence for ancient religion that we're likely to meet than the wonderfully well-documented Roman church mosaics I spoke about earlier. In other words, it has lots of uncertainties. The huge frustrating problem with this mosaic is that we have virtually no reliable context for it. We don't know the function of the building it decorated, let alone of this particular room. We can't be precise about its dating and we don't know who owned it. On the other hand, we can be reasonably sure that the craftsmen were fairly local as the design has some similarities with other pavements in the area. Now, all this uncertainty is particularly frustrating because of the images on the mosaic. And these suggest that it has huge potential as evidence for, about the relationship between traditional classical culture and the Christianity in Britain at the time. In one section of the pavement, the mythological hero Bellerophon is shown on his winged horse Pegasus killing the monster Chimera. It's a subject that appears on other Romano-British floor mosaics of this period, so it's not that uncommon. The other section of the floor has at its centre 
the head of a young man. Behind him is the Cairo symbol, the Christian monogram formed from the first two letters of the Greek name for Christ. And on either side of this head is depicted a pomegranate. Now, the identity of this man is the biggest unknown of all. Many people think that it's probably an image of Christ himself. And if so, this could be hugely important for our understanding of religious life in Britain at this time. But it would present even more puzzles. For instance, why would Christ be shown in parallel with a mythological figure, Bellerophon? And why would he be shown in the middle of a floor where the image could be trodden on? Very different from his exalted and unambiguous images in the apses of Rome. I'm going to talk about the mosaic floor of the synagogue at Ostia, the port of Rome. If you go to the archaeological site of Ostia Antica now, and you go right to the far side from the entrance, you come to the synagogue. It was found by accident in 1961 when they were building a motorway to Fiumicino Airport. So it's literally on the edge of the archaeological site. The building's very clearly a synagogue, There's a menorah, a seven-branched candlestick, and other Jewish symbols carved on some of the architectural features. Uh, It's got an internal apse orientated towards Jerusalem, where the sacred scrolls would have been kept. And there's an inscription on marble for for the well-being of the emperors, recording the name of a benefactor to the synagogue. There's a main hall with a complex of rooms around it, And like all public buildings in Ostia, it has a mosaic floor. The floor's partly mosaic, partly opus sectile, which is sort of marble, crazy paving. But a large part of it is mosaic. There's been a lot written about the Ostia synagogue, mainly about its date and the building phases. But the only reason people have commented on the mosaic floor is because it's a possible dating tool. It's the exact opposite of the synagogue floor at Apamea. It's black and white instead of multicoloured. There's no text. It's all very rudimentary geometric patterns. Black and white squares and rectangles, stylized flowers, some labyrinth-style patterns, which in places look rather like extended swastikas. Uh, In one place, within a mosaic frame, there's the design that's usually referred to as the Solomon's Knot, which consists of two ovals interlinked in an impossible way in, in real life, an impossible knot. But there's nothing particularly Jewish about that. It was a, a common feature of mosaics of, of all types, and you find it in other buildings in, in Ostia. In Ostia, they did have the concept of putting texts into mosaics, like at Apamea. In the small forum known as the Piazzale delle Corporazioni, there's a whole series of mosaic inscriptions recording the names of the cities which traded with Ostia. So it would have been perfectly possible to have a synagogue mosaic floor in Ostia with the names of donors... Perhaps it wouldn't have been possible to have a multicoloured mosaic floor because public buildings in Ostia tend to have more basic black and white functional floors. But the significant thing is, if only the floor of the building had been discovered and the other architectural features hadn't been there, 
it would never have occurred to anyone that the building was a synagogue, which makes you wonder how many other unrecognised synagogues are lurking in the archaeological record because their mosaic floors didn't have any specifically Jewish content. So the object that I've picked today is the nave floor mosaic of a small village church from the region of northwestern Syria around the area of Hama and and Apamea. Unfortunately, the walls of this particular church don't survive, so we don't really have any idea what sort of decorative program would have featured on those walls, be it painted um, or mosaic, probably painted in this case. The nave is quite interesting because it preserves a lengthy dedication inscription that tells us a lot about the people behind the mosaic, the clerics, the patrons, as well as the mosaicist, who is referenced at the very end of the Greek inscription, not by name, um, but anonymously, Jesus Christ help the decorator, which probably means the mosaicist, uh, one of the mosaicists involved with the decoration of the church. The imagery on the floor is also quite interesting. It shows us a range of animals running across the pavement of the nave. This was very much the type of pavement that was in vogue in the mid-6th century when this pavement was laid. And in this case, we don't actually have the animals being hunted by any human figures, as in earlier mosaics, earlier house mosaics. The animals also aren't really hunting each other. They're not chasing each other around the floor of the nave. Rather, they're presented in almost a kind of vertical catalog so that we get to appreciate the animals that might have been local to the village, um, that people in the village might have seen in their daily lives. The antelope, maybe the bears that are in the mosaic, more exotic animals that the villagers might have seen if they journeyed north to the city of Antioch, such as lions or elephants, and also mythological animals that would have been deeply symbolic, perhaps, for the Christian community using the church. For example, the phoenix that perches uh, at the very top of the mosaic, a bird associated, of course, with death and resurrection, and in the world of Christian symbols with, with Christ, who had died on the cross and was thought to have been resurrected. So really a, a decorative pavement, but a pavement that preserves a lot of information for us, as well as gives us a window into the ways that Christians who were using this floor perhaps looked at animals as particularly meaningful symbols of Christ, but also of virtues and vices, which is another way in which we see these animals appear in the sermons of the period, um, animals as symbols for the good qualities of humans, as well as our follies. That brings our discussion to a close. I'd like to thank Dr. Sean Leatherbury for joining us at the Open University to tell us about his work on mosaics in Roman and late antique Syria. And thank you too to David Noy, Janet Huskinson and Aidan Hart for sharing their perspectives on this topic. You can visit the website of the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion to find links to some of the mosaics that we've been talking about today, together with a bibliography and a link to another extract from my conversation with Aidan Hart, where he describes a detail from a mosaic depicting the crucifixion, which he made for St George's Church in Texas. Thank you for listening.